Please bow your hearts in prayer with me. Father, we, we just thank you so much that you would take our sin, though it's scarlet, and make it white as freshly fallen snow. And as we sang those words, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. It's a true statement, and God, there have been so many times in my own life where I, while owing you all, have given so far less than all. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive me of the times I've shortchanged you of what I owe. In whether it's my time or my sacrifice or my effort. Lord, please forgive me for that. Help us to not only declare the truth of all to Him I owe, but Lord, also help us to display it and to live up to it to, as Paul will say later in this letter, to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would conform us to yourself. You would use your word like sandpaper to change us and shape us and rub away the undesirable parts and to fashion us into who you desire us to be. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. It is quite peculiar to watch someone enjoy something that you find miserable. And I'm not just speaking about pickles here. I, for example, I, I think of long distance running. And I'm not talking about like running two to six miles for exercise like what a normal person would do. I'm talking about marathoners and beyond. I'm talking about people who are like, you know, a long time ago, some guy ran 26.2 miles and died. I think I want to try that. That sounds like a good use of my time. Uh, and I think that that would be great. And so they set it as a summer goal. And while they're going, they're like, hey, my toenail just ruptured. That's cool. Hey, my knees feel like they're going to fall off. Isn't this great? Oh, wow. There's something called plantar fasciitis. This is wonderful. Everything hurts. And then they cross the finish line of the race. And they're like, that was absolutely splendid. I can't wait to do it again. And you talk to them. And you're like, so how'd you do in the race? And it's called a race. There's like a definite winner. How'd you do in the race? Oh, really good. I got like, like, did you win? No, I got like 348th. And, and they're like, and that was my personal best. I'm like, well, maybe running isn't for you. Like there's, there could be other things that you're good at. I don't know. And then they're like, but next year I hope to get like 275th place. And 
you know, I mean, we all have goals. Um, my friends who have run these distances and do run these distances, they talk all about the pain. They talk about the discipline, having to get up early, having to find a 20-mile route that works for a run, like not like a drive to get groceries and eight other things, but like actually running that. And they, they talk about all these things and all the discipline and all the perseverance. And then they're like, and it's just the greatest thing ever. Because for them, they have like this singular joy in the accomplishment of the race that is not eclipsed by the pain and the suffering of the training. And they find the joy in it. And, and it's this ironic joy that while suffering, they can, joy can come out of it. And not only come out of it, but far surpass the suffering. But this ironic joy while suffering and through suffering is not limited to marathoners. Ironic joy can be found in anyone who's driven by what we'll call a singular joy. Where I find joy in this one thing and I'm going to push through whatever comes in order to get the joy of that one thing. And as believers, we are not an exception to this, but likely we are the best example of this. Where we have a goal, which is the glory of God, the spread of the gospel, and we'll do everything for that. Where we believe the words of our Savior that it is a blessing to be persecuted, that it is a blessing when people say false things about us on account of Christ. We are told daily to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And when we do so, there's a joy in that. And yet even for us in our context here in America where we have just like a crazy amount of freedom and despite what we think is going on, we have more acceptance of our faith than what is common throughout the world. We can be astonished by believers who are suffering in persecution and hardship and loneliness and have joy on account of the gospel. We can still be stunned by that as their brothers and sisters in Christ. And this type of joy that's in spite of dot, dot, dot is found in people who have this singular purpose. And a large, a large part of the desire for us to be focusing this year and next year, and I don't know exactly how long, but this idea of living eternally is that we would have the singular joy of God's glory set before us as a body of believers. That as we are experiencing and extending God's love, we would be doing so with this, this singular joy of God's glory, of God's worship. And how that's accomplished is through telling people around us and around the world that Jesus died on the cross for their sins so that they can have eternal life with God as their adopted spiritual father. For us to have the singular purpose of God's worship from every tribe, tongue, and nation through the spread of the gospel. So it makes sense that we would strive for the purpose of God's worship, that we'd be zealous to spread the gospel. And as those things grow, there is a joy and rejoicing that comes from it. When Paul penned Philippians, 
he had every reason to be discouraged. See, before, you know, a few years before Paul penned Philippians, ministry was going really pretty well for him. He was on his third missionary journey. Everything seems to be going good. He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And then this prophet named Agabus comes uh, and, and prophesies that Paul is going to be arrested in Jerusalem. And so everyone around him is like, Paul, this is a closed door for ministry. You shouldn't go. Paul says, let the Lord's will be done. And he goes and he gets arrested. After getting arrested, while in, pre- while in prison, Jesus says, don't fear. You will testify about the Lord in Rome. And between that moment and when he actually arrived in Rome, Paul foiled a plot to kill him by the Jews He was in prison for two years because the local authority thought it was fun to talk to him, and so he wasn't willing to pass him on. Then he started sailing to Rome after two years of being in prison. He's a prisoner on the ship. There is a shipwreck. They get stranded. They have to winter at an island in Malta where they have to swim in through the reef. He gets bit by a viper. Everyone thinks he's cursed. Then everyone thinks he's a god, which keeps happening to Paul, apparently. And then he eventually gets to Rome, where he's under house arrest, chained to a guard. It's not the Spain he had looked at at one point. But it's far from the ideal, what we would consider open door ministry, if I'm going to follow whatever God gives me. I don't think Zondervan was contacting Paul to write a book deal on how to be a successful apostle. And I'm sure there were a lot of people during this stretch of time where he's in prison for a couple years, he's shipwrecked, he's bit by a poisonous snake, and then he's in prison longer once he gets to Rome. I'm sure there were a lot of people that looked at him at that point and thought, well, that guy's doing it wrong. That guy's, he's not living right. He's taking some bad turns. And even in Rome, when Paul writes this under house arrest, under constant watch from the royal guards, and in the passage we're looking at today, he refers to his chains and imprisonment three times. He talks about people who are only preaching to stir up trouble for him. This is or should be a depressing time for Paul. Where it seems like he's losing, losing, losing. But it's not. In fact, Paul actually ends the short passage we're looking at today with rejoicing. And Paul's tone from the outside is is ironic. It's unexpected. It's even absurd. But this is the singular joy of the gospel. Of a man who's obsessed with seeing his obsession prosper even at harm to himself. But as the object of his obsession grows meaning the gospel of Jesus Christ, so grows his joy. So let's look at the passage. Philippians 1, starting in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, 
are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. The singular joy found in the advance of the gospel surpasses physical circumstances. This is a surpassing joy. It's not just in spite of, but it grows beyond our pain. It grows beyond our discomfort. And and one of the ways for Paul that it surpasses his physical circumstances is because Paul knows the point. He knows the point of this all. The point of this all isn't for Paul to live his best life now. Paul's best life, our best life, comes in heaven. It isn't for Paul to make friends and influence people. It's for the advance of the gospel. Now how the letter of Philippians came to be a letter is that while Paul was in prison... All his food, all his care came from his friends. And in the case of Paul, it's people he's ministered to over the last several years have come to visit him. They bring him food. They bring him encouragement. The church in Philippi heard, oh, Paul's in prison in Rome. We're going to send him some relief. We're going to send him some food and some care. So they bring him, uh, they send him Epaphroditus, who brought probably some food, probably some, most likely some money so that he could buy food, buy provisions. And, and I imagine they sent him some correspondence. Here how, here's how things are going in Philippi. Here's how we're experiencing God's love. Here's how we're experiencing God's provision. We want to extend that to you. We want you to encourage you based on what's going on. And so Philippians is Paul's thank you letter to the church in Philippi. Give them an update on what he's doing. Maybe answer some questions that they had. Um, also provide some encouragement for them in their walk with the Lord and how he's doing. And so he says here, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, because I'm sure they're grieved, Paul's in prison, this is terrible, poor guy. I mean, no one wants to go to jail. And Paul goes, hey, I just want you to know what's happened to me has just been such a win. The gospel has advanced. This is great news. Imagine like this written on the back of a postcard with like a chain and a lock and a Roman guard who looks really grumpy. Like that's the postcard. My trip is going great. The gospel is advancing. In this this letter, in this section, Paul's giving them the Bobby McFerrin treatment of don't worry, be happy. I know I'm in jail, but the gospel is advancing. A commentator named Gordon Fee says this, to advance the gospel has been Paul's lifelong passion. He has thus ordered his life so that nothing will hinder and everything will advance the message about Christ. Evangelism is his meat and potatoes. 
So while Paul does mention his imprisonment in chains three times, it's not the forefront of this section, but rather it's just kind of a setting, a backdrop. His imprisonment has become the backdrop, and the forefront of the scene is the gospel advancing. In the first place it's advancing is with the imperial guard. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And this imperial guard refers to a specific elite group of guards in Rome known as the Praetorium. And these guards would be chained to, chained to specific prisoners for about a four-hour shift at a time. So Paul would have about six guards chained to him a day, and this would rotate. They, they think there were about 1,000 guards in this group. It's, it's unlikely that Paul had all 1,000 guards, but he probably had a good number of them rotating over and over and over again. And I, I think, like, Paul became like, he had to be like the easiest assignment for these guards to be chained to. Because I'm sure they were chained to some bad dudes who were like, hey, if I beat up this guard and take his keys, maybe I can get out of here. And then they come to Paul, and they have like this old rabbi-type guy who's been pretty beat up over his life. And he's just joyful. And he probably, he probably talks their ear off about Jesus. And when he's not talking their ear off, there's someone visiting him. He's talking to them about Jesus. He's dictating his letters to Timothy and Titus while chained to, this, to these guards. He's dictating his letter to Philippi and to the other churches while chained to these guards. And I'm sure like in whatever their, like the Roman guard coffee break room is, they're like, you'll never believe the guy I was chained to. And, and I don't know what they said about him, but it became known through the whole guard and to everyone else that he was there on account of Christ. And I think we, we overcomplicate evangelism so much. We think, oh man, I'm just waiting for the open door with my coworkers. Paul's open door was like, hey, we're chained together. You know what, Jesus? You know about him? Have you heard about everything that's happening? Let me tell you about my trips. Let me tell you what God's done in my life. Being next to the person was the only open door he needed and if we, if we would focus more on the gospel, perhaps it would become the only open door we need as well. And so it became known to all of these guards that Paul was there for Christ. And a lot of people think that, that several of these guards became brothers in Christ. Because at the end of this letter, Paul greets the Philippians on behalf of those in Caesar's household. The other group that's encouraged, that's advancing the gospel, so the, the gospel's being advanced to those who are hearing it for the first time, and the gospel's being advanced by those who already know Jesus. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The believers in Rome... Those who were new believers when Paul first got there and evangelized to the Jews, he had them come meet with him at his house arrest. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you why I'm in town. And then all of those in the church that he had written before he got there 
All of these people are being encouraged, and most of them are now sharing without fear. You know, Acts refers to this season of Paul's life at the end of Acts. It says Paul, and, it, and Paul's under constant watch of a guard in house arrest, and it says, and he ministered without hindrance. And this challenges me. Because of all the things that I think of as hindrance in my life are so far short of house arrest. All the things that I think hold me back from proclaiming Christ without hindrance are so many degrees shy of what I would consider Paul having hindrance. And for him, this was no hindrance at all. And I need to change my view of sharing the gospel without hindrance. I recognize that need in myself. And and the believers in Rome who were free in their own homes but felt all this pressure from, from the culture around them. All, they felt all the unpopularity of Christianity closing in on them. And they see Paul ministering without hindrance while on house arrest. And they see his joy from the advance of the gospel within the imperial guard. And then in their marketplace, in their neighborhoods, in their homes, they are more confident and bold to proclaim Christ. And that is worthy of celebrating because that's the point. And so surpasses physical circumstances because Paul knows the point is the advance of the gospel. He also knows the snare of success. This idea that our earthly definition of success dictate our biblical definition of success. We can at times have such an earthly definition of success and opportunity that we limit what could be the advance of the gospel. We limit gospel success and opportunity because that requires suffering at some degree. And our worldly definition of success and opportunity is the path of least resistance. We tend to view any pushback as a closed door instead of a blessing like our Savior calls it. And in our pursuit of progress, we confuse worldly success with godly direction. Had Paul listened to the human reasoning offered to him, he never would have gone back to Jerusalem and been arrested. Taking the gospel to all peoples and all places requires suffering. It will cost tears. It will cost dreams of having family live close. It will cost money that we will send corporately and individually to get people to those who have never heard the gospel so that one day the name of Christ will be proclaimed by every tongue, tribe, and nation. And it will cost the blood of saints who are willing to say the name of Christ in very dark places. 
if we buy into and integrate too much into worldly success plans, of our, our ministry will miss the call that God has given us to take up our cross daily and follow him. Paul also celebrated in the gospel knowing the peace of God's sovereignty in now. The sovereign now. Sometimes we feel a specific call to ministry. God's taking me here at a point. I'm going to get to this point where my ministry and my life and my family will look like this. We, have, we do this with retirement all the time. Well, then I will be able to live how I want to live. Then I will be able to do this. Once I get this taken care of in my life, then I'll be able to minister in an unhindered way. As you read Acts and you, care, and you look at the life of Paul, and you look at those two years when he's in prison before getting sent to Rome, and his time in house arrest in Rome, a lot of our New Testament was written while Paul was in prison. And I'm so grateful that Paul didn't wait to get to Rome for his ministry to start. I don't know where you think God is taking you, I don't know all the dreams that you have in your life. But I think it's pretty safe to say, maybe you're there now, but for most of us, in some way, shape, or form, we're not there. Maybe your marriage isn't what you want it to be. Maybe your finances are really struggling. Maybe you feel like, boy, I'm just like two good Bible studies away from starting a nationwide revival. Like, I don't know where you're at. But maybe you're just not there now. And maybe you're in a place you don't want to be. God is sovereign over your now. And He has you here. He has you in your job. He has you at your school. He has you in your neighborhood. God is sovereign over your now. So how can you serve him in your now while you're waiting for what you dream will one day be? Trust God that in his sovereignty you are where you are for a reason and live obediently for him. Put Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Apply that to your now, not just to your dream of your future. The last thing that helped Paul have this joy that surpasses physical circumstances was his joy of success. In my years of ministry, one of my greatest joys has come when people I've had a chance to minister to, I then see them caring for others and leading others and teaching others and discipling others. And when you see those that you've led in Scripture, then lead others in Scripture. There's a joy that comes from that. And that's the, that's the success of ministry. It's not the big buildings. It's not having your face on a book cover. That's not the success of ministry. The success of ministry is seeing disciples make disciples. And when Paul writes that the brothers have become more confident, almost all the brothers are speaking the word without fear, 
I read that and I think my Bible editor should have put an exclamation point there. There should be an exclamation point there. Like, this is amazing. This is exciting. This is what it's about. Seeing the gospel progress and how the gospel grows and spreads and progresses is when mature believers make disciples who make disciples. When we realize our role within the Great Commission and see that happen. As we move down to the next paragraph, the the singular joy found in the advance of the gospel surpasses not only physical circumstances, but surpasses peer acceptance. Of those emboldened with the gospel who are preaching, there's two groups. First group is the good. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others do so from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The good, these are loving, faithful, true brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what ministry success stories are made of. This is, this is what gets people excited. This is how movements are started. People see Paul suffering. They are encouraged by his example. They go out, share the gospel out of love for God, love for Paul, speaking the truth of Christ. Not for themselves, not for any of their motives, but for the glory of God. This is the best. This is how movements start and grow. These people certainly enhanced Paul's joy. But they were not the source of Paul's joy. The source of Paul's joy is the gospel. Our partnership in the gospel with other people can enhance our joy, but it can never be the source of our joy. Because when people become the source of our joy, our joy becomes as fickle as people. These are the good. And then the next group is the bad and the ugly. They're contentious. They, for some reason, have a rivalry with Paul. There's a whole lot of ego. And our ego will just hamstring our ministry. When we make our ministry about us, when we tie our fame to the gospel, bad things come of that. Selfish ambition cannot drive the gospel. This group is the stuff of nightmares. They're the stuff of church splits. They use the gospel for selfish gain, envy, rivalry, and to cause Paul harm. I don't even know exactly how you do that when you're spreading the gospel. Like you're going out like, Jesus loves you. And by the way, Paul's a jerk. Like I don't know like how they do that. That that just takes a lot of effort uh, that seems unnecessary. Maybe I'm too lazy to try and do that. I don't know. Maybe they lied about Paul. Maybe they, they said he, he smells bad, he has bad theology. I don't know what they did. Maybe they were just trying to grow a bigger church and have better podcasts than Paul. But either way, they had a malicious intent towards Paul. You know, in the book Heavenly Man, Brother Yoon, who had suffered in prison in China for, for several years, he, he finds his way out of China. He comes to the West, to Canada and the U.S., And he has a little bit of a speaking tour built up where he's going around and he's telling his story and he's telling the story of the underground church in China to believers in America and someone decides to start telling everyone that what Brother Yoon is saying is not true. 
None of those miracles happened. He's a fraud. Don't believe him. Don't have him on your shows. Don't put him on your radio. He's a fraud. And what, what Brother Yoon says in that book is he says, the persecution I faced from other believers was more painful than what I experienced in the Chinese prison. I'm not saying there's never a time where we can where we look and we see another ministry going and we say, boy, that's just not, that's just not right. And maybe, maybe there's biblical reasons to, to call that out. What I'm definitely saying is this. We need to keep the gospel center. The gospel needs to drive what we're doing and be the centerpiece of everything we do. And when we do that, a lot of that contention is just weeded out, whether it's coming from us potentially or directed at us. A lot of that contention is just weeded out because we're focused on the gospel. D.A. Carson says this, Paul's example is impressive and clear. Put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. Our comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and the splendor of the gospel. As Christians, we are, called upon, we are called upon to put the advance of the gospel at the very center of our aspirations. Keep it about Jesus. Don't let dissension win. So we have the good, the bad, and the ugly, and then we have the great. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed... And in that I rejoice. The gospel is increasing. Jesus is being proclaimed. And that's the joy of Paul. That the gospel is growing. I want to be this gospel-centered. I want us as a church to be this gospel-centered. The last quote from someone else for the day, Kent Hughes, says, Paul was so gospel-intoxicated, so centered on getting the good news of Christ out to the lost in Rome, that his feelings and his aspirations were subsumed and subject to the gospel. Paul is being joined by other believers. He's being betrayed by people. But the only matter to him is that Jesus is being proclaimed. His joy in the gospel is so singular that his chains don't really matter. Because his chains aren't a hindrance but an opportunity. That the rivalry doesn't matter because as long as Jesus is being proclaimed, that's all that matters. Regardless of the messenger's motive, the gospel being proclaimed is worthy of celebration. It takes a great love of the gospel to have this perspective. And I, I just have to ask myself, do I love the gospel this much? Do I, 
going back to the song we sang before we started here, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. How gospel-centered are my aspirations? How gospel-intoxicated am I? I want you to think, and I, I want you to, I'll state these questions a couple times before we're done. What's been the pursuit of your last six to 12 months? So think and evaluate over that. Take some of your quiet time this week, pray and think on that. What's been the pursuit of my last to six, 12 months? And then I want you to ask this. Let's, let's say that it hasn't been gospel-centered. The next question assumes that. But even if it has been gospel-centered, you can still ask this next question. If the gospel is to become my pursuit, what will need to change in the next three weeks? So looking back at the last six to 12 months, look forward just at the next three weeks. What are just some like two or three simple things that need to change in the next three weeks for me to be gospel-centered? I think one of the things that needs to change is we need to grow our view of the gospel. If we're not gospel-centered, if we're not gospel-intoxicated, the problem isn't necessarily our pride, but the problem is we, we make the gospel too small. So I think of Jesus saying, don't worry about all these other things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I think that's the key to growing our, our gospel-centeredness. Seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. And so here's what I want you to do to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. I want you to sit down for a while with Romans 8. I want you to read Romans 8 two or three times. Just read it straight through. Don't write anything down. Don't underline a single thing. Read it through two or three times. Then I want you to get a notepad. And I want you to very slowly Go through Romans 8, and I, want you to, and I want you to, at the top of the page, write, here's what Jesus has done for me. Here's what the gospel has done for me. And then just list out everything in Romans 8 that's accomplished because Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again. Everything in your life that changes, and that's just Romans 8. And with that, let your view of the gospel expand. So what's been, the, what's been the pursuit of my life the last 6 to 12 months? And then as I grow to be gospel-centered, what needs to change in the next three weeks? Because Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. He has saved you. And the best thing for you is to live solely unto him. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to glorify you, that we have to sing your praises, that we have to call out to you knowing that you, God, hear us. Lord, I pray that you would enlarge our view of the gospel. Help us to not think too little 
of all that you've done and of all that you are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.